Välkommen till tidskriften Arkes podd med samtal om psykoanalys, humaniora och arkitektur. I det här avsnittet ska vi få möta en av de mest betydelsefulla filosoferna i vår tid, Agnes Heller, i ett samtal med Per Magnus Johansson den 27 september 2015, då Agnes Heller var på besök i Göteborg för att tala på bokmässan och på Freudianska föreningen. Tidskriften Arke har publicerat ett flertal texter av Agnes Heller. Fyra år efter att det här samtalet spelades in, den 19 juli 2019, dog Agnes Heller 90 år gammal. Hon drunknade i samband med en simtur i Balatonsjön i sydvästra delen av Ungern. Per Magnus Johansson skrev en text om Agnes Heller som finns publicerad i Arke nummer 68-69- och som finns att läsa i sin helhet på arke.se. Här följer en kort sammanfattning av texten som inledning till deras gemensamma samtal. Agnes Heller hade ett judiskt ursprung och föddes i Budapest den 12 juli 1929. Hon lyckades 1944, ännu inte fyllda 15 år, att tillsammans med sin mor undvika att hamna i koncentrationsläger med hjälp av schweiziskt beskydd medan hennes far, som var jurist, mördades efter att ha deporterats till Auschwitz. Agnes Heller talade med kärlek om sina föräldrar. Inte minst beundrade hon sin far och bevarade ett kristallklart minne av honom. Heller förblev en ihärdig kritiker av alla totalitära politiska system. Det gällde såväl den kommunistiska diktaturen under vilken hon växte upp som den nuvarande ungerska regimen ledd av Viktor Orban. 1977 valde hon att gå i exil. Hon tog sig till Australien och sju år senare till USA. Från och med 1986 var hon i 23 år verksam vid New School for Social Research i New York men återvände till sitt hemland år 2009 i samband med att hon avslutade sitt akademiska åtagande. Politiskt gick hon från att vara en humanistisk marxist till att bli en förespråkare för den amerikanska politiska modellen. Hon uppfattade att den amerikanska konstitutionen ger de bästa möjligheterna för den enskilde att förverkliga ett meningsfullt liv i frihet. Hon var emellertid självklart främmande inför den politik som Donald Trump bedriver. Hon var lika kritisk mot kommunistiska regimer som hon var mot högerpopulistiska. Hon var en förespråkare av ett enat och demokratiskt Europa och hon erhöll en mängd utmärkelser för sin kulturella och intellektuella gärning. Yes, uh, we we start uh, like this now. And uh, first of all, uh, I would say once again that I am very pleased that uh, Agnes Heller is here and um, that you had the possibility to talk to us and um, we had a first discussion at the book fair uh, and it was a very pleasant discussion a meaningful discussion we have and we will continue today knowing that uh, almost no one uh, was there so we will continue to talk about issues that we already brought up at the book fair uh, and then of course I would let you ask questions uh, to Agnes Heller we 
work as usually we start now and we stop at eight o'clock uh, in the evening as we used to do uh, but I uh, you are very much welcome here and I'm so glad thank you, you very much for the invitation yeah, thank you you're very welcome. We, and we thank have, you everyone being here yeah <coughs> we have met in Budapest a couple of times and we had had a lot of discussions so I'm so glad that you are here it's not the first time you are here. You were here... Um, I think 13, 14 years ago. 14 we had a discussion with Hilary Putnam in the Department of Philosophy here in Göteborg. I see. Yeah, we start. Um, and uh, learning from the experience of yesterday, I would try to limit my question to one or two questions and then I continue with the other question because uh, Agnes told me that um, I didn't ask one thing but rather ten questions so uh, it was even if I thought it was just one question anyhow um, we can start with the Hungarian situation and I want uh, to discuss some question with you that concern the present situation but for which your deep and broad professional experiences and life experiences also serve as a natural point of reference. You have a long and comprehensive experience of different countries and contexts. You have lived in Hungarian society, you are born in Budapest. You have been active in Australia for almost 10 years. You went to Australia 1977 and stayed there up to 1986. You have been worked for over 25 years at New School in New York and in the US. You left uh, to some extent 2009. So it's, uh, and you have returned to Budapest and you have traveled and worked all over the world. You have experienced communist Hungary, controlled by the Soviet Union, and the uprising against Soviet power, and Australia and its social system, North America and democracy. And finally, you have lived under the new political leadership in Hungary. Could you tell me briefly, comment on the differences and similarity between the various societies you have lived in? It's very difficult because I cannot compare Hungarian society, Australian society, and American society. I think it would take me a week to explain this to this audience. But I can only speak about my personal experience. I lived in Hungary in a totalitarian state. And I was persecuted there, an opposition there, and finally, after a lot of hassle, I received the permission to emigrate to Australia. That is, I jumped from Hungary to an entirely different world. I had no idea that you can get out alone. I had no idea that is a bank card which exists, because whenever I got salary, still I got it in an envelope, yeah, and never in a bank account. So I had to learn a lot of little things there, which I never knew when I was back in Hungary. But I accommodated easily because of friendship 
There were certain friends which who took me in, my husband in their company. And a half a year, we succeeded to go to a holiday together, to spend a week together and discuss each and every evening of common problems. And that means that we became friends, we had friends, and we, amongst some of us, we remained till the present day good friends after so, so many years. That is, it was not a culture shock in Australia, because Australia was a kind of Europe, a kind of proletarian England, at least Melbourne was a kind of proletarian England. Melbourne is different from Sydney. I do not <coughs> tell you the story, but was a proletarian England that was a shock to enter from a communist state into a state where there is money, there is income, there is profit, there is health service. We can choose in which health service want to belong or novelties, but it was still not a culture shock. After nine years of Australia, I went to the United States. That was the culture shock for me. I never lived in a real democracy. I could never imagine that democracy is down there in the university. That when I give an opinion about a student, I do not need to say he's good, he's better, he improves, but I have to answer the question whether he or she is a good citizen. So I have to find who is a good citizen. What does it mean? Why do we discuss everything together in meetings? Why can't I make a decision without asking seven or uh, eight people, uh, what, their, what their opinion is. Why should I consult the students if as a, a member of the faculty make a decision? Because students have a say in everything. So I have to learn a lot of things. I learned to learn how a liberal democracy works, and I learned a very funny things that people are individualistic, economically, entirely collectivistic in all the other things. I had to learn that you cannot move into a house without being accepted by the people who live in this house. That if I want not only to buy, but to rent an apartment, the house decides, all the people who are living there, decide whether they take me in or then take me in. They can refuse to take me in. They refuse Kissinger to take him in because too much hassle when a political person moves in our house. They refuse Blondie to take in. Uh, in, a, in an apartment house because she is going to sing much and disturb the neighbors. So uh, you can it very well, but this have to learn. That's a culture shock. Uh, that was a that's totally different way of life. Australia, Melbourne is a very private thing. Have, we live privately, and if you have friends, we live together with friends. No communities, no this kind of thing. It is, a, I say, a proletarian England, but America is entirely different. I had to learn America and to learn to love America. It took a long time because I got involved in it. But everything was different from Hungary. Australia and, and America. They were different, not just from Hungary, different from Europe. Because I, if I returned to Hungary, I returned to Europe. I returned not only to Hungarian history, I returned to European history. But Hungarian history is concerned. Hungary has a very unhappy history, really very unhappy history. And what happens now under Orban and about it, your press is informing all the time 
is a result of this unhappy history, a result of a kind of history in there was never democracy in Hungary, people were used to paternalism, people were used to get order and obey orders, people were used to thieving, to cheating, and to licking the boats, because that was the way you could survive. And that was so deeply, it was rooted in the population, and rooted the scapegoats, that you have to show who, who the wicked people are, to find out what's wrong with us, that we are psychoanalysts. You know that. You know that from psychoanalysis. Then it, and if someone does something good for us, we hate it. We hate it. them, pe these people more than the people who harmed us. That's also a very interesting psychology. It is also not only about individuals, but also about nations. That was the story of Hungary. Now we had a communist, two phases of communism. First we had fascism. Then we had a kind of autocratic rule under Forte. Then we had uh, a, a very Stalinist communism. Then we had a less Stalinistic communism. In between, we had a world war. The Jews were deported from Hungary. Half a million Jews were killed in Auschwitz and other places. That is, then we had Trianon, we had the Holocaust, we had the biggest social traumas of the 20th century, Traumas which were never treated. There were no trauma narratives. There were always, things were put under the carpet. People could say only lies about these things or, or remain silent. There, nothing could be discussed. Nothing could be really told. So these all uh, frustrating things, the all traumatic experiences under the carpet were there, and nobody wanted to talk about them. Then comes the system change, you know that system change. After the system change, I keep returning to Hungary, so I, in a way, uh, live uh, together with the system change. What happens after the system change? We have a democratic government. We have good democratic, liberal democratic institutions. We do have them. We have some people who really believe in those institutions. But what happens? They forget the people which they govern. They had no idea about the people about whom they made decisions. They believed that in a parliament, they make democratic decisions, it will concern the people, but it did not. People had no idea about democratic institutions, and they never got idea, never learned idea. So there is nothing to astonish if some uh, uh, so a strong man appears. A strong man, he reminds people on their well-beloved, strong men, dictators and others, for whom he can, they can ask favors, who can do them favors, and they do not need to sing, they, they do not need to decide, they do not need to do anything on their own, individually, they do not make choices, someone chooses instead of them. And this is an old habit which returns, and now they get a, a green light on the Orban, because Orban is now a strong man, put also in his hand and declared Hungary is an illiberal democracy. That is, he was the first person in the European community who spoke out against liberalism. You perhaps know what does it mean. There were two persons at the beginning of the 20th century spoke about against liberalism. One was Lenin, the other was Mussolini. Mussolini even said that is end of liberalism, that we will never have a liberalism anymore. No, that he was wrong, but not entirely wrong. 
because it is contagious. When uh, one reader says there is no liberalism anymore, it's ended, we need a strong hand, this is contagious, because it was contagious in Europe. Give that to what Mussolini said, was repeated later on in many other countries in Europe, and I won't say that that was the reason or the ground of the Second World War, but it contributed uh, to the victory of Adolf Hitler and to everything that followed after him, contributed to it. That is a contagious thing. And our Orban is not a person who takes it seriously, anti-liberalism. We are democracy, that means those who get the most, most of the votes in a not very free election, these will decide about everything, one person decides ever about everything, and it authorized to this decision by the majority, not the population, not real majority, but some in the votes, I got 40% of the votes, but in the parliament, that's a majority of population. That is, they can decide for them, against them. That is the strong hand. Now, what happens in the way of immigration? Basically, this policy is continued. He said, I am going to protect Hungarian borders and protect your country for you. He distributed leaflets and, uh, and giant posters in which the question was asked, what do you want more? To offer some haven for these refugees or to feed your own children? Of course, everyone wants to feed her own children more than the migrants. So then he comes to the conclusion after this and uh, this distributed leaflets that the 85 percent of the population does not like foreigners here. The hatred against the foreigners is not natural. Distrust against the foreigners, fear from the foreigners, that is natural. I think it's in every country, every people. In a way, fear some distrust for people who have different habits, different language, uh, look differently, and, 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 and it's unheim unheimlich in, in German and good no. psychological, uh, psychological... Uncanny. Uncanny, in good psychological language, uncanny thing. But they don't outrightly hate it. In order to hate, the, you have to they, you have to manipulate people to transform <clears throat> this fear and this disgust, this feeling of uncanny, yeah, to transform it into hatred. And this is what Orban government did, transform this natural feeling of fear and of, of, of uh, uncertainty into definite hatred, manipulating the population into hatred. This is what happens now in Hungary. I said that only because you have to understand, also in Sweden, it is contagious. Also, Sweden knows that's less because you were left out from two world wars, but the other European states, people know it very well, a contagious thing, because that is a, that one person does with success, without meeting sanctions even from the part of the European Union, can spread, because it's easier to decide your things uh, on your own. It's easier than this very difficult and boring things of checks and balance. It takes time to decide. Everyone has a word. The, the powers are divided. It's easier if it's not divided. One pen when decides, and they will have a little, I would say, understanding for this kind of decision making. So it can be contagious, and that's why I'm afraid. I'm not that my afraid because of 
of Orban. I'm afraid for whole Europe. And I mean that seriously. And you in Sweden, you will understand that less I tell you because you were left out from this whole uh, European history. You kept yourself apart from European history, but maybe I still tell you this, that Europe has two traditions. One tradition is the Republican, liberal, democratic tradition. The other tradition is the totalitarian tradition. That is, uh, uh, Europe was Republican and also Bonapartism. Modern, modern history started with the French Revolution. Uh, Enlightenment ideas continued with Robespierre, virtue and terror, and then with Napoleon's conquering Europe. So this kind of, uh, of the, the strong men saying uh, came uh, together with the, uh, with the understanding and uh, appreciation for liberalism and democracy. In Europe, the liberal democracy has no deep roots. It has no really deep roots. It's not America, not Australia. That's comparison. It has, uh, has deep, no deep roots. In the last 50 years, in, uh, 60 years, 50 rather than 60, in Western Europe, there were liberal democracies. They don't, not so many years. Comparison with others, in the, even after the Second World War, there was military dictatorship in Southern Europe, in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, was military dictatorship. There were communist dictatorship in almost all East European countries, and even neutral countries were very reluctant to take sides with one or the other. So those who stood up for liberal democracy were basically the minorities of European countries, even after the Second World War. So it's not a, um, just a subjective, idiosyncrasy, and I say that this anti-liberalism is contagious, and we have a right to fear uh, this contagious um, sickness, this, this malady, which can be very dangerous for Europe and future. Maybe that's also a comparison. Uh, did I make a comparison? Absolutely. No <laughs> doubt about it. You said that you couldn't do it, but you did it. I, I, I thought about one interesting question. Uh, just uh, more related to you than anything else. You said that you have to learn to love America. That, uh, and then I wonder, can you tell me something what happened in the US for you that made you love America? What Can you give me some concrete examples of that changed your opinion or, or rather that made you start to love this country? Because I was, you see, um, uh, socialized in the new left. So I was, uh, in a way, uh, suspicious about capitalism, of course, yeah. about a consumer society, yeah. and also believed that everyone in America watches only advertisements yeah. and behaves as the advertiser tells them to behave. And then and live there and I saw people around me, none of them acted like this, none of them acted like this. So I was, I became, uh, I expressed some doubts in myself, whether we understanding of America was a correct understanding, maybe it needs to improve. But at the same time, I understood America is a violent country, maybe far more violent than any European country is violent. There's a lot of violence there. And not just because guns are there, there's a lot of violence also without guns. It is a country where there was apartheid, 
that was apartheid even the 50s in the southern parts of the state. That's a country in which there is racism. So all the wrong things are there. What I haven't understood, that all those wrong things were there and are there, but they also help themselves out from the abyss. That is, if that goes wrong, they themselves correct what is going wrong. That if there is slavery, then the North declares war against the South. The most bloody war, civil war in human history, far more bloody than Novarius and Sula or, or the Russian civil war. The far more victims, a real bloody war. In order to put away slavery, they went to war with the, with the other Americans. Can you imagine that, doing that? Uh, and then afterwards, many spoke about apartheid. What happened with apartheid? It happened that in the North there was civil rights movement. Young people like these young people, they are young people, went to the South, spoke to the black population there, they told them, you, have, you cannot tolerate it, you should not tolerate it, you should, should stand, stand up for your rights. At the end, they did, and they were risked their life. Two of these civil rights students were killed by nationalists in the South. It was very devilish, but they broke, they did it. So they themselves, they did, do not need a foreign army to install liberal democracy. All European countries need a foreign army, except England, but England is not Europe, because it's not continental. But all European, they need at all, all an army. Without an army, a foreign army, they cannot uh, uh, cannot have liberal democracy. In America, the population itself corrects everything which is wrong. They correct the wrong things. And, and this is what I felt. A population which cannot even imagine a dictatorship, that is important. There is imagination everywhere. Europeans can imagine, and you, Apollo, Bonaparte, and so on, they can imagine. Euro Americans cannot imagine it. They have only the Constitution. Constitution is, is a sad thing, a sacred thing. And they cannot imagine a world which there is no Republican Constitution. Cannot imagine a world without First Amendment. So there are a lot of terrible things going on and will go on in the future as well. But they cannot end addition. They have no problem with immigration. If no problem, the whole America consists of immigrants, of course. But they have no problem with immigration even now because they can wonderfully integrate the foreigners without assimilating them. They don't ask for assimilation. That is, you can come from any place, you can be an Italian American, uh, uh, an American Italian, Italian, uh, Irish Italian, I, uh, French Italian, I, Asian and Indian Italian, uh, Pakistan, American. everyone. You can whatever you wish, whatever you wish. You can live among your own, uh, uh, dress yourself as you wish in your traditional thing, eat your traditional food, behave in your traditional way. No one really cares. You do not need to behave and to speak and to dress as an Englishman or a traditional American. What you need to do is the following. You have to tolerate, you have to honor the freedom of others. You should not infringe the freedom of others, your own family included. You should obey the laws and honor the Constitution. That's all. And then that's why the foreigner becomes an American patriot.
And this is what is so difficult in Europe, because in Europe people need to assimilate, it's not enough to integrate. They need to somehow to behave like to be people, traditional people, the because nation states, because of nation states. That's so only from the 20th century on, not earlier. Earlier that was not the case, but the 20th century is the case. So I started to like America because I think this is the only country I trust. I trust with liberal democracy. I trust that whatever happens, whatever conflicts there will be, they will not abandon their constitution. And that's, that's, the, that's a basic trust. But we never know what happens in the future, because in history the main actor is accident. Yes. Maybe in relation to that I can ask you something. Uh, why do you think that America for specifically in the West Europe, the left, the Marxist, the communist, the socialist, even the social democrats, America became like an enemy. The, America was systematically criticized by the left, all tendency of left, they criticized America during a long period, and in Sweden, still, I would say still, at the university, uh, people who are left-oriented automatically are negative towards the U.S. and suspicious. And how do you understand that? I come back to the first stage of the discussion that people need enemies, yeah? yeah. scapegoats. Some, what is wrong with us, there is someone else who is responsible for it. This is, and America serves for this purpose, because of course jealousy and envy is very important in having scapegoats, because they are wealthy, because they are, rich. They are not that wealthy. They are not rich, but in our imagination they are wealthy, they are rich because they are great, and they are small because they, uh, I don't know what. Uh, you have to hate someone. Yeah? And those who loved the Soviet Union, by definition, hated, hated America. That was by definition because America was the enemy of the Soviet Union. That was, and those who wanted, who, hit, who liked states which were supported by the Soviet Union, for example, Egypt, Arabic states, will of course hate America and will hate also Israel because it's supported by America. This is basically that comes in one part of the left, is traditional. It's traditional. It comes from the tradition, still from the tradition of being pre-pro-Soviet, even if there are no more pre-Soviets, even there is no more Soviet Union. This tradition is stuck in one part, but only in one part of the left, not everywhere in the left, I can say. No, no. Very good. Um, another question. Uh, you told me uh, in Budapest this summer that if Orban loses power, he would lose everything, and for all time. No political comeback would be possible. So Orban is a question of all or nothing. Can you comment on that? I can't I will comment immediately. Mm -hmm. I want to add for what I said. Of course, America can be criticized. They did. Uh, they made a lot of yes. bad steps. Of course, they made. Uh, even Americans criticized America world uh, mm -hmm. in more, more, uh, more 
extreme fashion than uh, the left in Europe does it. They themselves do it. They can be criticized very often. They supported dictatorships, for example, in order to limit the power of the Soviet Union, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of criticism can be said. Now I criticize America as well, because now I hate this, I, uh, this uh, agreement with Iran. So I would criticize them. But it doesn't matter if you criticize them, you criticize everyone. Uh, but, but in spite of criticism, in spite of all these bad steps, the, the fit, loyalty to liberal democracy cannot be questioned. That's the only thing uh, I meant. No, I, I see that and, and, and I understand that perfectly well. What I was asking you, and I think you, you responded to my question, you, you gave me a good answer. It's not that to me. America is by definition criticized by... That's true. And, and without, not because what it does, but no, generally. Yeah, it is the concept of the concept. United States of America, greatest nation on earth, and yeah. it is like in that conception of the country there is criticism. And that's, you gave a good answer, yeah. and it's a very natural step to put America as a general enemy. And if there is a need of an you enemy, they, they made a choose, they made a choice that is understandable. No, because no, they, America is responsible for the war in Syria. See, I read it in the newspapers. How come? He had nothing to say. The Syrian civil war started against Assad. America had not a hand in it. But if they say it about Iraq, there is something in this point. But if they say about Syria, there is nothing in yeah. it. It's, it depends on right. right. About Orban. Next We question. are going back to Orban. Basically, this is the case with everyone who, is, who acts like a dictator, even if there is no dictatorship, but acts a dictator. That is either everything or nothing. If they lose the power, they lose it forever. And that's, that is the example, I can give you all the examples. If a power who puts everything in his own, own hand and excludes everyone else from power, only his servants, if he loses power, he loses everything. That is, will never, will never have a comeback. I see. That, that is basically historical experience. I, I uh... I told you, I think, and you made a comment on that when we spoke to each other in July in Budapest, that uh, I came to, to Budapest and it was a very stormy weather and I took a cab to the, from the airport to the, to the center of the city and I spoke to a, a taxi driver and um, he started to tell me uh, about Orban, that he really liked him and he was protecting him and he was a strong father figure he was someone who was defending the family and to me maybe as an analyst i saw that he had a function he, he had a he, he served something from his psychology he meant something to him and related to his situation and we spoke about that and then you told me something when we discussed this that 
you felt that there is a fear among the Hungarian people. Can you say something about that fear? How is that fear expressed uh, in the Hungarian people? The fear is a very simple, because in order to keep your job, a good job, not as, as a small job, a good job, you have to, uh, in a way, uh, uh, speak, uh, agree with the propaganda of the government. Uh, and if you don't do that, you uh, put yourself at risk to lose your job. This is first and foremost the case uh, at the school, the school teachers, but, uh, especially director of the schools, they lose their position if they sympathize with oppositional parties. This is true about everything who works in any state-owned institution or state-owned on economic entity or, or state-owned land or state-owned factory or whatever. Everyone has to obey and has to even support the position of the party. That's why people are afraid to tell their opinion. Because if they tell opinion, they are mostly losing their job or they cannot get a better job. They, it's in vain to compete with others for a position or even for an assignment because they will certainly lose, certainly lose. So that's why people are afraid for their existence. That's a different kind of fear than fear in communism. In fear, communists they were afraid of their freedom because they can, could have been put into prison. Nowadays, the opposition people are not put into prison. Their name is vilified, blackened, uh, they are criminalized, but that comes, goes to the point when the, uh, when the party, the Fidesz party organs, criminalize you in the television or in the radio, but in fact, they never succeed to put you into prison because the uh, judiciary, is not really influenced by the government. Up to a degree it is, but it, it not entirely is under the influence of the government. So you, you can, they can uh, criminalize people in their press and everyone will believe and he will, they continue to believe that they are criminals, but these criminals will never get to the court of law because the, court, because the police and the, and the legal system does not permit it. So that's a that's an interesting contradiction here. Mm. You understand that? Yes, of course. And I will ask something that we also discussed in Budapest, and it was uh, many people who are here are, are related to one way or the other to university. And you said to me briefly that uh, uh, the heart of the university, namely the right to criticize, uh, is threatened at the university in Budapest or in Hungary. And how would you describe the situation at the university? To what extent are there still free scholars uh, that are, have the permission to, to seek and to find the truth? Uh, to are, look, 
uh, the university lost its autonomy. There are no more autonomous There's no more autonomous. no more autonomous universities because state functionaries are sent to all universities. They make decisions about about the composition of university. They make all the financial decisions. Uh, they are they are um, nominated by the state for all, to all universities. So the that university in fact loses all its autonomy. But a professor, of course, can teach whatever the professor wants. If he wants a promotion, that's another matter, because promotion he will not get. But uh, no one is simply thrown out because an opposite, because of a different opinion in history or in literature. Uh, I don't know examples. They don't get a promotion. And that's also a matter of money and matter of, of recognition they, uh, that you know is so important for people, whether you like it or you don't like it. That's money. It's money. It's money. Like in the U.S. That's other. <laughs> That's another matter. And, and of course, money has a different. And U.S. is interesting because in in Europe, you don't speak about money. You speak about ideas, but you mean money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you speak about money. ideas, but they mean money, but and mean. I, but they, they cover up. That's a mask of ideas, and finally, they, everything is about money. In America, it is not shameful to speak about money. You can't speak about money when you mean money. So when you speak about ideas, yes. you mean ideas. Yes. That's a different thing. <laughs> that is. <laughs> It's better to tell the truth than to lie. Yeah, but it's not so shameful. I do it because I want to get more money. You can't say that in America. But I do it because I think that's the right thing. He does it because he thinks that's the right thing. Because there is no shame in doing something for money. It's not shameful. But if you do something for ideas or conviction or justice, you do it for ideas, for conviction and justice. Because not for money. It's, it's so simple. Europe is still very feudal. This is an important distinction when you have the permission to say what you really... By the way, I want to add to anti-Americanism that the right-wing movements are also anti-American. Yeah. Of course. Marine Le Pen is very anti-American. Jobbik in Hungary extremely anti-American. Yes. So uh, you don't you speak I speak about only about, about the left. That's that's one one-sided yeah. question because the far right is very anti-American. Yeah. I'm thinking about Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen is also anti-American. Yeah. When when she will. Uh, use it for her own purpose, but she can also take the opposite position for her own purpose. So, at the Oyobic party, which is extreme rightist party, ex extremely anti-American. I see. I see. Yeah. Uh, we take another question um, that um, we discussed to some extent um, um, Uh, <clears throat> knowing that you and your mother escaped from being murdered by the Nazi, and remembering that they killed your father, one could say that the terror of 
World War II is a part of you. I would like to hear you some reflection on how the diaspora, the experience of exile and of breaking up or being forced to leave, has influenced your intellectual identity, Jewish intellectual identity, uh, and also related to your philosophical tradition. To what extent are these very personal experiences, horrible personal experiences, present in your life today? Ah, uh, complicated. Look, uh, we'll speak about philosophy first. Hegel said that philosophy is nothing else but our own age expressed in concepts. Nietzsche said that philosophy is nothing else but autobiography. I think both statements are right. Certainly in my philosophy, my personal experience is embedded. But my personal experience embedded together with the experience of our world, that is, it's also the world expressed in concept, not only my personal experience. Both play a part in philosophy, in everyone's philosophy, I think so. But the, most, the greatest influence of my experience um, inf uh, it was uh, the choice of the topic of my philosophy. Because the first topic I choose or the topic choose me rather than I choose the topic. You didn't choose. Yeah, no, the, I did choose that a topic chose me. I, I didn't choose, but that was basically ethics and philosophy of history, because to answer the question, to raise the question, how was this historically possible? How was totalitarian philosophically possible? And the question, how could people do what they did? How could people throw infants into gas chamber? This is a moral question, a historical question and a moral question. What happened with our century? What happened with the 20th century? How come that Europeans have murdered 100 million Europeans in the 20th century? How did it happen? So this was a question which was important for me that to understand this question. You need moral philosophy on the one hand and uh, philosophy of history on the other end. So basically these issues become, became important for me because of my life experience and because the experience of the 20th century, which was not only my life experience, but the life experience of all of us in a way. And these experiences are still present in, in your way of working with philosophy. One cannot forget one's experience. But I think that after a while, I came to the conclusion that the questions which I raised cannot be answered. It can only be raised. How was this possible? You cannot really answer. You can give causes. You can speak about conditions. But no condition and cause explains uh, maybe totalitarianism up to a degree, yes, but Holocaust certainly not. So when I came, I saw that I wrote everything that I could write about these issues. Then I said, look, forget it now. I turned to other issues because I cannot go further. I said everything what I wanted to say about morality and about philosophy of history. I said everything what I could say. Others can say other things. I could say no more. So I turned to other matters. And what was, when was this? The other matter, I turned to religious issues. I turned to art. 
to literature. I wrote a book on Shakespeare, I wrote a book about comedy, I wrote a book about the philosophical interpretation of the book of Genesis, and I, I wrote now books on which I have psychological topics, a book about philosophy of dreams, and a book about uh, autobiographical memory. So I read more psychology in the last five years than I read philosophy, because very few philosophers said something important about dreams, and very few philosophers said something important about autobiographical memory, because philosophers were very interested in memory in general, semantic memory, pragmatic memory, uh, that was their interest because they were interested in the kind of memory which produces knowledge. Because every kind of knowledge is produced by memory. Without memory, no knowledge. So they were interested epistemologically in the question of memory. That is, they were not really interested in autobiographical memory. Mainly psychologists were interested in this. So in the last two books, I basically treated that topics which are rather psychological than philosophical, but I treated them philosophically. Previously wrote, I say, but Shakespeare wrote about the Bible, wrote about, I wrote a book, a book about Jesus, yeah, which was published also, not, not in Swedish, not in Swedish, but in many languages. In fact, uh, also the uh, comedy book was published also in English, and uh, the Shakespeare book also in English, but not in other languages. The, Jesus' book was also published in three other languages. Never mind. That this was what I wrote. Now, it, now, after I finished this, I start to return to philosophy and started to write the history of philosophy for beginners. Because I think that the interest of philosophy is gone. Or maybe even the need is there, people do not know that they have a need to understand things philosophically, at least to ask questions philosophically. So that's why I started this endeavor to write the history of philosophy. Now I finished the first volume only, and it's not yet out. I just finished it. So let's see what's going to happen in the future. But I do not return in books to philosophy of history and to moral philosophy, because as far as the books are concerned, I think I I asked, I answered all these questions to the extent I was possible. It was possible for me to answer them. That's it. Let me ask something in relation to that that we have been discussed yeah. now and then, and uh, it is your relation to Michel Foucault, because Michel Foucault, to some extent, is someone who is. Uh, in the meeting point between psychology and philosophy, the history uh, related to psychological issue and to philosophical issue. And uh, I know that you met him and I know that you have read him. And what is your relationship to his work? I started to uh, teach Foucault's philosophy already back in Melbourne, uh, before I met him personally. I see. Uh, because I've... I was taken by his books, by the, uh, by the, by the novelty of his books, by the novelty of his approach. So that was taken by. So I started to teach old uh, already in Melbourne, Foucault. But when I went to America for the first time, uh, visiting on the invitation of uh, New York University and NYU. That was the first time I met Foucault in person. When I met Foucault, I told you already, 
I learned something very important from him when I met him and had a first conversation with him, which was basically the idea that modern philosophy is personal philosophy, that no more isms in modern philosophy, no more schools in modern philosophy, every philosophy is personal. And learning from Michel Foucault, because I was in a discussion with him in Europe, someone came to Foucault and told, asked him the following question. Are you a structuralist? or a post-structuralist. Foucault looked at him and said, I am Michel Foucault. And that was <laughs> such a wonderful answer. Oh, come on, I said, I am Agnes Heller. I do not need to find out what kind of ism I belong. I'm not post-Marxist, not even post, nothing like this. I myself, I learned a lesson from Michel Foucault. Then we, we became in a way befriended. So he invited me for dinner with my family, and he cooked the dinner with a little apron. I remember. <laughs> he cooked a dinner. And he cooked a very good French dinner, in fact. Are there an interest in uh, Michel Foucault today in Hungary? Now, I don't know whether there is an interest in Michel Foucault in Hungary at the present moment. I cannot answer this question. I am sure that there are certain students who will write dissertations on Michel Foucault. Because you have to write a dissertation about someone, yeah. So the, you have to the, the, uh, eagerly find a topic, a topic not so many people have written a dissertation about. I'm sure there are people who write dissertation Michel Foucault, but I'm interest in philosophy except the small group of philosophers themselves. There is no interest in philosophy in Hungary at all to say the mildest. And that's understand that we had no philosophical tradition. Our Hungarian tradition is only in aesthetics, and people are still interested in aesthetics, yeah? In, in the aesthetics of fine arts, even music, but not in the fundament, fundamental questions of philosophy that Foucault is all about, because he always treats the fundamental questions yes, of philosophy. Does. That is his métier. So this is not what the Hungarian public is interested in. It's too heavy for them. They don't understand. Because it's interesting that they don't understand the simplest thing. That if you read something, but you entirely understand, this thing is not worthwhile reading. Because you have understood it. What the hell do, can you learn from, from something that you understand anyhow? But it's worthwhile uh, reading is that you do not understand. That you understand something, but you not the whole thing. You have to get, put effort in it. I want to understand it. That is my need. I need to know what is in this stuff, because this provocation. And without this provocation, nothing happens. And people do not like this provocation. They don't like it very much. So philosophy has not a good press today, if I may say so. Mm. Certainly not, in, I don't think that only in Hungary, but I, I think nowhere, but that's another matter. I was just going to say the things you said, that uh, you should not believe that the lack of interest in philosophies only related to the situation in Hungary. We have a lot of other countries like Sweden and the North Europe and I spoke recently to the one who is publishing Jacques Derrida. There is a lack of interest even in France for philosophy. So this is an international European uh, manifestation of something that is hard to accept for us who are interested in philosophy. Uh,
They are interested in two things. By the very short books with a slogan, which can be repeated yeah. and then be quoted. That's very sick. That's I know about. I don't want to uh, mention names. Well, it makes sensational things because they write little books, but they're very. But there are always slogans in there, a word which you can repeat and can apply it on everything. That's great. The other is in Germany. The very serious people, because they all write antiquarian philosophy. That is books, very thick books on someone wrote something about someone who wrote some about something about someone else. Yeah? That that is that is you don't ask the question what is evil. You when you say what is evil, you speak what was said about evil by Aristotle, by Kant, by I don't know whom, and what was said by an other author about what Kant and what Hegel said about evil and the third author the same. That is antiquarian philosophy and nothing to do with the question what is it? But uh, they don't go to back to the things themselves. They don't ask the question, why is that so? Why is it not otherwise? They don't ask the question of children, because philosophy, a good philosophy, always asks the question small children ask. Why I am not permitted to do this and rather to do that? Why is that so and not otherwise? Why does it happen? Why does it doesn't happen? By our stars, whether there exist spirits, whether is, is God, whether God exists, and all, all this kind. Children ask the question. Philosophy asks this question. Children ask, and if you don't ask this question, if you only quote people who answer this question, you can quote hundred to hundred people, and your name can be mentioned in many, 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 many very important uh, journals, periodicals. It does not. It is not philosophy, and it does not have any merit, in my eyes. There is a, <coughs> maybe you can make a comment, there is a general problem, I think, with, um, with the study of philosophy, and it is, of course, that um, philosophy takes also time, and uh, we are living in, in an area, like, yeah, I saw yesterday a manifestation of uh, that authors uh, in Europe are worried about the situation that uh, young people don't read, uh, don't take the time to read like they did before. And um, my own experience at the university, it is that uh, that uh, students are today less motivated to stay for longer periods of time to read and it takes time. I, I recently had a discussion in, in Paris with uh, Philippe Solaris uh, who uh, said that uh, students they don't remember anymore what they read so he made a formulation of of oublier, uh, which means to forget and to read, but in one word that he constructed a new word that meant that people are reading without remembering. So there is also a tendency, I think, among young people at the university that this specific task to read that takes time and takes concentration, that this uh, capacity is less 
or is threatened or is less developed. And I think this is also something uh, that makes philosophy, like you said, slogans. Slogans are more easy to remember than a complex uh, text, that there are contradictions, that there are not possible to simplify, that is really you have to take time to integrate what you read and to make an own statement out from your reading takes also time. It's a really process that if you just want to make something very fast, even in psychology today, the kind of treatment that psychoanalysis once proposed, maybe that you have to work through something for a decade, are threatened by the idea of, of quick treatment for after five sessions you are cured, they say, but it's a way that everybody knows who has been working with this question, it is not true, it is not the truth. So there is also a tendency, maybe, and you can say something about that, that make a deep interest for philosophy very hard to make it possible to say. That's very interesting what you said about time. True, in philosophy there is no one night stand. There is no philosophical, yes. yeah. But, no, I think, no one, but, one but I think that in love there is not it either. It also takes time. It yeah? takes time. It takes time. Uh, it takes time. The philosophy takes time. Takes and, time. But when you see, speak about time, and for uh, we have more time. The, our youth has more time than the generation before us had. The life expectancy is longer. That our youth will live longer. That is more time at our disposal than for our parents and grandparents. That is, the temporality has two sides. One side, we have more time. At the same time, it's a moral matter because you may think that what I cannot reach today, perhaps I will never able to reach. And what I want to reach everything now because I won't have time tomorrow to reach it. There is this kind of thinking. However, however, I am not use bashing. I don't think that young people are worse than we used to be. I remember what my grandmother told me, who was 86 years of age when I was 15. She said, look, when I was young, they kept saying, in our time, children were far better than they are today. Said my grandmother when she was a child. So all, all generations say the same about the young. They are no more what they should be. I don't think so. I don't think that, that the young generation is worse than our generation or generation of our children or our fathers. They might be different, but they are not worse. And the interest for books, I doubt it. I'm sorry, I was, wasn't a book fan. How many books you publish in Swedish? An enormous amount of books. Someone has to read these books, I guess. And not only people above 85 read these books, I doubt it. 
The same can be said, Hungary is even smaller than, than Sweden. We, have, we translate all the books in Hungarian. The people read these books. When there is a book fair, a lot of lines stand, say, I have to sign my books all the time. People go and they read and they tell me what they read. Not just old people, young people too. The, the question is what you, whether they want to go into reality in this business, whether they want to deep, make it deep. This is a question which I cannot answer, but would have never been answered. Because in my generation, boys rather played card or played, uh, played soccer than read books. That uh, even in my generation, the minority were reading books, really, seriously. Others, I read only the books obligatory for school in order to get a good grade. Others did not read anything. But uh, the, I don't think if you the percentage of people who read books, the percentage, uh, the number is not less. The percentage is less. Because you look how many people attended university, my father times, in one percent, yeah? Yes. Now maybe 30 percent. <coughs> you cannot expect from 30 percent that they should do exactly the same thing that one person did because it's mass universities. The percentage of people who read great books among the young, young people is maybe lower. But the number reading good books, I don't think it is less than it used to be. That we are maybe blind with the Marxian utopia, that in a world where there will be free time, everyone will paint and everyone will do philosophy. Not everyone will do it. We have to, uh, we have to take it seriously, psychologically seriously. You are analyst. That the person, that the number of people who are really interested in serious things will not increase uh, enormously. Not increase in uh, as the learned people increase. Learned people increase far faster than the people really intensively interested in intellectual spiritual matters. I think so. But anyway, I give again, go back to the, my topic, New York. And New York, the evening schools in New York. And the evening schools, when some of my friends teaching, Hegel's logic, Hegel's phenomenology, to group of people who pay heavy money in order to attend philosophy courses. They are very successful lawyers, painters, successful businessmen among them. They, see, they sit in the school and learn Hegel and learn Kant and learn very, to read very serious books. Why do they do it? Because they say they do not get meaning out of their life. Otherwise, they need something which gives offers meaning to their life. And that you don't get it in the law school, they don't get in engineering, they don't get from the software, they want some meaning. And so many people come and pay a lot of dollars to get, get without getting a grade, without getting anything, no grade, no final examination, nothing, just sitting there. I once upon a time uh, met in a restaurant two people, a very um, rich people, capitalists, yeah? Very rich people. <laughs> rich people told me that they're ready to give one million dollars for a scholarship under the condition that they can attend the seminar. So they said, look, they can attend. I recommended them a Freud seminar because I believe that it's easier to understand than Renaissance philosophy for them. They should attend. They came to all Freud seminar every week. 
They read everything. They read everything. They wrote, they wrote papers. And they always raised their hand. They wanted to talk. They really wanted to participate. And for this, they paid $1 million for a scholarship because they wanted to get some meaning. Being in this together with others, thinking about matters about which they do not think normally. And I think that's natural. And I think that happens also here. Maybe we do not offer evening schools for these people. But there are people who want to get some meaning, and they get it from philosophy. They can get it from religion, or they get it from philosophy, but something else, not the everyday pragmatic things. I don't think that this need is lost. I think that what you're saying is a very optimistic way of thinking. I'm not completely convinced that I agree with you, but um, if the future will consist of a lot of people extremely interesting in reading Freud and other philosophers, I will be extremely grateful and happy. Uh, what I more see today is people seeking information. They have a computer and the computer gives them the answer, the internet gives them the answer, and this specific way of seeking knowledge by staying alone together with the book for hours, for weeks, for months, for years, is not what I see the most frequently in my praxis at the university. Why do they attend concerts? I do not mean uh, rock concerts, but serious classical music concerts. Why do they go to theaters? Why do they, yeah, why do they visit theaters? Mm. Why do they go visit the opera? They do it. Today, to take another example, when you are publishing um, uh, uh, serious books, you um, very often the editor asks you to come with some financial support for publishing books that are not that very funny, but are serious books. On the contrary, what you can see, it is like uh, uh, stories related to criminal acts, parlors, and different kinds are very much sold and you can see public you can have a book of of uh, Derrida and you can sell it maybe in 500 copies and you can have a book uh, of one of the famous Swedish uh, Decker authors and it's the, it's 500,000. But it was never otherwise. Only the, the numbers were different. It was basically 2,000 to, to 20, yeah? About the uh, sold copies. That is the, the, the people, but most people want have entertainment. They want yes. novels, they're thrillers, etc. Even they are even thrillers. good thrillers, but they want the thrillers, interesting features, which is good, which gives you some excitement. <coughs> But they, what you say, serious books are, are less readers. But they do have readers. That was always yes. the proportion. Heine could not sell his poems. Very good. We have. Uh, 
We have now around 30 minutes left, so is there anyone who wants to ask uh, something? You are welcome. Obviously, many people want to say something. Yes, I go Andreas. down because I hear better when I get close to you, okay? Yeah. So I was wondering what you said about uh, the U.S. is kind of a universalism and a liberal mindset. How important are the Christian-based values for the American society and what is the weakening of those now doing? I don't understand your question. What about weakening? Uh, the Christian values. Uh, okay, for but uh, I speak, you speak about Christian values. I speak about religion, because the, the question is relevant. Relig uh, Europe is basically secular. America is not a secular country. Of course, there are secular persons, that's also secular religion. Well, that most people are members of different religious communities. It belongs to communitarianism because there are all these communities. Religious communities are among the communities. I just read an American novel when the, uh, there was a liberal person visiting a city, a small city. She was asked the same question everyone is asked in a small American city to which, which church you want to attend. And anywhere it's all the churches. I think six, six, or six, six or seven. And then the liberal person answers, oh, it's wonderful, but a great choice. You see, that's it. The choice is great. Of course, it's religious. I don't know, but maybe the two things belong together. That is a word of community that is religion. Believe in the Constitution and they believe in God. Both. I cannot deny this. Maybe it's alienating for secular persons, but I think that's the fact. They are not cynical about anything. That doesn't mean that they are fundamental. There are fundamentalist Christians among them, but of course not all of them. Majority is not fundamentalist at all, because there, because there are these seven churches in this city, and they are interested only that you go to one, and not interested to each one. Yeah? And that's, that's, that's the case. Another question? Yeah. Yeah? Which one? In the back. Oh. <laughs> uh, I've heard it said that in Hungary it's possible to act however you like, as long as you hold the correct ideas. While in Northern Europe, and in Sweden in particular, you can have any idea you like as long as you act according to the social norm. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree with that statement, but if you do, could you say something about that in relation to freedom? Because you say there is a lucky country. You speak about Sweden. It's a lucky country. But uh, Hungary is not such a lucky country. There was always this problem. About, uh, I told you this very traditional. Uh, that traditional. If after the system change was a great, was a freedom of thought in every university. So basically we started this free, uh, freedom of, the, of thought, but it is not, uh, it is not God, but it's limited. Uh, that's the, that's, that's the tradition in Eastern Europe. And I repeat that you're a lucky country, you don't know, you are not familiar with this tradition. I can give you an example about human rights. And I quote a former Hungarian dictator, Janos Kada, in the times when he permitted many things in Hungary. And he spoke to foreign journalists. 
they asked him about the rights. Gandhar answered the following, every Hungarian citizen has the right to apply for a passport. And I think that's beautifully expressing. They have all the right to apply. That is, you supplicationis, says the old Latin. That's a, that's a feudal, medieval right. You have, you have to ask favors. You have the right asking favors. This is basically the tradition. You understand the tradition. Agnes, may, maybe you can, you can speak here yeah, but I, okay. in microphone. So I speak here. But I have to understand what they are. Just a small question. I listened to your explanation about the Hungarian population support toward the present system of Hungary. I have a certain knowledge being a Hungarian myself, because I left the place about 25 years ago or something. But how you can explain the young generation of Hungarians why they supporting this kind of authoritarian and paternalist approach to the state? Young, young generations of Hungarians leave Hungary. A half a million Hungarians have already left Hungary yeah. in the times of Orban. Young people do not revolt. They don't, they're not going to opposition. They just say goodbye, my country. Uh, London is the second biggest Hungarian city by now. Yeah. Because after Budapest, most Hungarians live in London. They're all young people who left Hungary and will never return as long as the system will remain what it is. That is, uh, the young people vote, they vote with their feet. Yeah, but, but yeah. You, uh, excuse me, but you're talking about a few hundred thousand young people who left Hungary, but there is a certain <coughs> sizable number of Hungarian young people who support the present authoritarian system and who support the right wing you are right because that's important because more young people support the extreme right than the government. Uh, this is very true uh, for two different reasons. Half of them because of racism and because they're anti-Roma and anti-Semite and so on and so on and so forth. The other half just because they are oppositional. That's why. Uh, this extreme rightist party says we are the party of the young people. We are the party of the 21st century. The other two parties, Fidesz and the, Soci and the Socialists, are parties of the 20th century. Their time is gone. So they appeal to the young people, we are the party of the youth. And a lot of young people believe in them. Because they like revolt, they say, like to say no, they like uh, happenings. And this extreme right offers them a possibility to get happenings. So half a race is half just because it's opposition and young people love to be in opposition. These are the two reasons. Those who are supporting Gyobi. <coughs> Thank you uh, for the question. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very good question. And uh, if you, uh, I, I would say, without asking, you know, answering your question, but in general, we don't understand why people are, are thinking and acting like they do in the whole West Europe. This is the case, a country that I know pretty well, France, there is around 30, 35% who are, who are favorable to a political 
thinking that is hard to understand. Why do they do so? Why do they think so? And here in our fantastic country, Sweden, we have seen the starting point of something else that we cannot understand. Why are 20% or maybe even more thinking on the Swedish party called Sverige Demokraterna? We don't understand. In my, in my opinion, we don't understand it. We can try to explain it. We can, and Agnes gave some explanations, but I think that question is fundamentally extremely important and a very good one. And I would insist on that we don't understand this completely. Of course, we can give some explanation. The need for opposition, the fantasy that this uh, political system would create something good. Agnes told me today when we spoke to each other, uh, a, a political propaganda that you have also in Sweden. You have a picture of two old people and another picture of an Islamistic uh, young woman. And then the question, would you prefer that we support those people or that people? So it is, and that it is possible 2015 in a country like Sweden or France or Hungary to have this kind of artificial uh, choice that necessarily leads to a violent situation and there is in Europe a violence and I think that we don't understand why and we don't understand why this kind of political uh, thinking had such a, a positive connotation for so many people. That's my, my opinion. I think that psychoanalysis yeah. should understand violence. We try to understand everything and we are working yeah. all day yes, from the morning what, to the night, I mean, but we uh, cannot understand that up to now. And I think, <laughs> I think the question was a very good one and I, I, I am I'm glad that you asked the way you did. Thank And I agree, and I agree, you, you, and I agree with what you would say. And my answer is clear. We don't understand this completely. We have ideas. <coughs> Once we used uh, to explain everything by in a hard economical and social situation when people are suffering or threatened by this kind of uh, economical and social crisis, this creates that kind. But this is not true. It is not true. The main problem in, in, in West Europe is not that people are suffering from economical uh, inconvenience. That maybe is, maybe they, this they is suffer not... from something else. They can suffer of boredom. They yes. can suffer of emptiness. They can suffer of... Yes. You know, you are a psychoanalyst. You must know people suffer not only because of lack of money and lack of promotion. They can suffer many other things. Now people suffer because... You are a psychoanalyst. People want to fight for something, yeah? I am psychoanalyst, and I know that people are suffering from different reasons, you know. and emptiness, lack of meaning, That's and it. the fact that I have not been capable of replacing 
the religious belief with something else is extremely important. We yeah. And this is why I said America has not re, uh, has the religious belief. Yeah, yeah. they have they have the religious mm. belief. That's very interesting. It's very important. That is, uh, Europe is not narrow-minded. Europe is not uh, not is secular, secular. But at the same yeah, time, believe it, that. and not disbeliever, but cynical at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And believing is, in magical thinking. Yeah. And that's why, and people cannot live a cynical life forever, so they no. want to believe in something, they want to have something, and, and that was communism they believed in, that was, sometimes it was in in France, and in Italy, and other places, there were communists they believed in, they believed in the Soviet Union, they believed in certain leaders, and then they do not have them anymore, they have to believe in something. Yes. So that's it, you understand. Because you know that we don't understand ourselves either. How can we understand them? I agree. Yeah, good. <laughs> we are in agreement. Yeah. Another question? Yes, Gunilla? I'm thinking about the religion and uh, the belief in the Constitution in the US. Uh, I spent a year there in 1960-61, went to high school, and every morning all the students had to stand by their desk, a hand on heart, and saying, uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with uh, freedom and justice for all. And this was every morning, every classroom. And I, uh, as a Swede, didn't know exactly what to do in situation, <laughs> but it reminded me on what we had when I was younger, but which still existed in the gymnasium, the colleges uh, in the 60s, Moron Burn, I don't know if, the, the morning prayer, Christian morning prayer, and to me this was a mixture of a Christian morning prayer, but to this um, nation. So I, I was thinking of this mixture, religion uh, and constitution, the belief in the constitution that uh, I feel that you were talking about. Yes, I, this is, uh, sometimes it, it is uh, something strange for a uh, European. Yeah. I, uh, when the, our team of our university in Australia went to America and they uh, were singing the American anthem and they put that on the heart, the Australian team started to laugh. They started yeah. to laugh. They were almost kicked out from the United States because of this. But because they don't understand. But in order to believe in the Constitution, to believe in liberal democracy, in the freedom and in the otherness of others, in that we are all equals with each other, in order, you have to have other beliefs. You cannot be cynical on the one hand and believer in the other hand. Unfortunately, I would like to have all the secular people believing absolute liberal democracy and all these values and welcoming all the strangers. But you cannot have everything, Un unfortunately. Unfortunately, it's not, it's a very great difference. Between, that's why I thought it was a culture shock for me, America. It is a culture shock. 
But then you have to understand what, what, what it means. Yes, you pledge the uh, allegiance. That, that is on the hand of your heart. Yes. And, they, and they mean it. Yeah. I thought about something when you, you spoke also. I think that maybe that you said when we spoke to each other this morning, uh, that is maybe also very important. And it is that you said something, but when you lost uh, your belief in Marxism, it was related to the question that you didn't believe in progress anymore. Uh, or in the good human being, in the progress. And I think this is important to, to the Swedish uh, uh, situation that for a pretty long time there has been a belief in progress. We had had a development uh, from, uh, from 1945 and up to, I don't know when, but maybe 1980 or 85, or I don't know, we believed in... Uh, in what you call, you could say it, a welfare state. And uh, the democracy, the modern Western democracy that gave the opportunity for the most people to go to the university, to have a own house, to believe in the possibility of influencing the society, to take part of the discussion in the society and to be that uh, the, there was some kind of uh, progress for the majority of the people. <coughs> and I don't think that this belief is still present. By the way, I better speak about progress. I haven't meant this, because this feeling that still thinks improve, improve, improve. It will be better for all of us. We will be more equal. This belief is also in America. And because you have this good constitution more than 200 years ago, we will make it better. But the European future was a future which was different from the period, which was not the improvement. It was something different. It was the land of, of milk and honey. It was the non-alienated society, communist society, socialist society, without private <coughs> property, without state, without army, without this. That was the real utopia. And that's not a utopia that things get better, that it will be more equal. That's just fine. I don't think that this, this, this belief cannot be, it can stay with us. Americans all believe in that, that we improve. No, it, it's better, but we come back to the uh, better situation. We will improve our situation. That will be better for the future generation. But if that's the first time in America, it's worse for the present generation than the previous one. But they still believe that in the future it will be better. But it's it's not a, don't don't want to overcome the world as it is now. The concept of the progress was something different. It was the Marxian concept or the Kantian progress. What did Kant say? Uh, that was improving the human character. There will be, perhaps, the revolution of the mind. Hmm? Revolution of the mind. From this moment on, we will all obey the moral law. Then after the revolution of mind comes the progress in us at the end. Mm -hmm. And the human essence and human appearance, freedom and nature will be united. That's the real utopia. And this, this was, believe it, some leftist 
Europeans, I do not know about, but Marxists believed in this, that there will be an overcoming of capitalist society, overcoming everything which exists now, a totally new society. And this was the utopia. But that we can have better man with our world as it is, there will be always problems, always conflicts. We have to fight them, but we can overcome one in order to face the next one. I think that's not utopia. Then I would talk as a psychoanalyst. I see that your distinction you make between progress and improvement, and I think it's a good one. But I would say something I think is important, and is that the belief that to believe in something is something that's functioning for you or not. It means that it is related to the unconscious and to the conscious. You cannot oblige people to believe in something. They believe if they are capable of believing. And there are reasons why you believe and why you don't believe. And even if the, someone else is telling you that you should believe, it's not still the case that you believe. No one can tell you that you should believe. No, you cannot, no, no you cannot tell you that you should, lo- no. should love, but you can love and you can believe. Yes. Yeah. And you can stop believing and, and you and can stop, stop loving. loving. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Both are true. Both, both, you can both. stop to believe and you, yeah, can, you stop can stop to love. To but you can, cannot you order to believe. There is no order in there love no order and not to in believe. believe. No, but there is a kind of spiritual atmosphere. Yeah. In a spiritual atmosphere. Are you sure that in, uh, in the 19th century, basically everyone believed in God? Yes. Yeah, everyone believed. It, no, you say in America, not just the 90% or 95 believe in God, 75% of American population believes in life after death. That you can say that's totally, <coughs> narrow, that's totally narrow mind. That, that's stupid, you can say that. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that means that they haven't read Nietzsche, they haven't read Marx, and they haven't read they, Freud. They have read Nietzsche, and that's all American story. Nietzsche said that God is dead, and on the American cars you are read, Nietzsche said God is dead, Nietzsche is dead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and Marx said that, God, that religion was an opium, and Marx wrote that religion was a drug for the people. There are, oh yes, yeah, it was opium for the people. Yeah. He took it from Heine, because yeah. Heine was the first yeah. who said it, but Marx took a lot of things from Heine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, he never made secret of it. And what do the Americans say when they, they read the Marx? That, that Marx was a drug addict? Uh, by the way, a lot of Americans read Marx. Interestingly, uh, Marx is a dead dog in Eastern Europe, but in America, and you can all bookshelves, you have all the Marx there. So the, uh, people read Marx, but they, the, the, they read something else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can read the same thing and read something else in the same thing. Yes. There is interpretation. That's always, uh, we always, always read everything, in, 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 we interpret everything when we read it. Yes. Yeah? as we interpret everything when we experience it. Yes. So that we do. So I say go to any bookshop, you will see a lot of, lot of marks that people are reading because it's sold. Then we can stop with that and I can tell you the following things, that there will be a Marxist who has recently published a book about, of Karl Marx, his name is Sven-Erik Lindman, and he will come here 
in January to speak about his book. We will have a discussion because Frederick Liebman and me is going to write a book together about Freud and Marx and he will speak here in January. And then I would like to thank you, Agnes, thank for you. coming. Thank you, you thank we, you for thank your, you. your passionate questions. Thank you. <laughs>